On the sixth day, the heavens and the earth and all their hosts were completed. And God ceased from his labors and rested on the seventh day. And God blessed the Sabbath and made it holy. He made it a day of rest and refreshing to be a sign between him and all of Israel. We thank God for the joy of life. Baruch Adonai Eloheinu Melech Olam Borei Prihagahafin Amen Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who creates the fruit of the vine. Amen. We thank God for our daily provision. Baruch Adonai Eloheinu Melech Olam Amotzi lechem min haaretz. Amen. Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from out of the earth and has given us the true bread from heaven in Messiah Yeshua. Amen. Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who has hallowed us with your commandments, has desired us, and has given us in love and goodness your holy Shabbat as a heritage, in remembrance of the work of creation, the first of the holy festivals, commemorating the exodus from Egypt. For you have chosen us and sanctified us from among all the nations with love and goodness, and have given us your holy Shabbat as a heritage. Blessed are you, O Lord, who hallows the Shabbat. Amen the blessings over wives, mothers, and widows. May the Lord bless you as you care and nurture our families. May he bless and strengthen your hands as you serve the needs of others. May your children rise up and call you blessed. May your husband value you above riches and glory. May the Lord clothe you with dignity and adorn you with loving kindness. The blessings over our children May the Lord bless and keep you. May he look upon you with a smile. May he watch over you and protect you from harm. And to our sons, may you be as Ephraim and Manasseh. To our daughters, may you be as Sarah, Rebecca, Leah, and Rachel. Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom, everyone, and welcome to our Arab Shabbat broadcast here at B'nai Shalom. Glad to have you. This Shabbat, we are at the Torah portion called Korah. It's going to begin in chapter 16. Last week, I was cut short just a bit in the teaching. I want to cover one point before we get to Korah, because it's at this point, after judgment has been pronounced upon this generation, that they're going to march through the wilderness for the next 40 years, and they're going to die in the wilderness, we have all these other special teachings being given to Moses that are part of the Torah for us today. One of them had to do in this last chapter in particular about the man who went out gathering sticks on Sabbath. Now, Moses had instructed there to cease from the labors to rest on Sabbath, but apparently this guy intentionally went out and essentially was gathering up firewood on the Sabbath. Now, that's a very laborious job. 
He was supposed to have done this in advance of Sabbath, so he'd have enough fuel. But apparently he was a lazy fellow. He hadn't done it. So here he is. He wants some firewood. And so he goes out gathering fuel for his campfire on the Sabbath day. And so we have this story that's given to us, and it deals with the subject of intentional and unintentional sins. This is an important part about understanding God's judgment and how we regard the commandments. Verse 22, chapter 15 says, but when you unwittingly fall and do not observe all these commandments, which the Lord God had spoken to Moses, even all that the Lord has commanded you through Moses from the day when the Lord gave commandment and onward throughout your generations, then it shall be, if it's done unintentionally, without the knowledge of the congregation, that all the congregation shall offer one bull for a burnt offering as a soothing aroma to the Lord with its grain offering and its libation according to the ordinance, and one male goat for your sin offering. Then the priest shall make atonement for all of the congregation, the sons of Israel, and they shall be forgiven. For it was an heir, and they have brought their offering, an offering by fire to the Lord, and their sin offering before the Lord for this heir. So all the congregation of the sons of Israel will be forgiven with the alien who sojourns with them, for it happened to all the people through error. I need to tell a quick story about how I learned this concept about everybody as a unit and how, if they make a mistake, how it's regarded. I was in the U.S. Navy, and I was in boot camp. And our company commander was really trying to help us very well on our very first inspection. And so he loaded up our white hats, our white belts, our T-shirts, and he took them into the laundromat so he could bleach them to make them real shiny and clean for us. The problem is he went in the laundromat, it was late at night, and he fell asleep. So here we are, recruits in boot camp. We're waking up at 4.30, we're getting ready to start our day, and we don't have our white hats, our belts, and our T-shirts. So what we did was we knew that he would be coming, so we went ahead and used some of our other clothes that had to be in lockers and so forth for inspection, and we put them on, and we went to breakfast, and we come back, and we took them off, and we put them back in their proper place because we were not only going to have a personnel inspection that day, we are going to have a barracks inspection that day, and everything had to be in its proper place. Well, he still didn't come. And all of a sudden, we have to go to quarters. we got to go out, stand on the what we call the grinder, salute the flag for morning quarters, and be inspected. So here we go. We march out there, all 60 of us, no T-shirts on, no white belts, and no white hats. You see a sailor walking outside with no white hat on, it is the strangest thing you've ever seen in your life. Everybody notices you immediately. And in fact, when we're standing there at attention, waiting for a couple of these inspectors to come up, I believe their exact words when they came up and saw us was, what the hell is going on? I believe that was the exact technical words they used. It's military talk. Little did we know, there's a rule in the military. Instead of every one of us getting gigged for no white hat, no white belt, no t-shirt, it turns out that if the entire unit has made exactly the same mistake, everybody made the exact same mistake, we all look alike, 
then it's a unit problem, not an individual problem. In other words, it wasn't me. It was the unit made the mistake. And you could only get gigged 10% of the number of guys that was in the unit. Now, we had 60 guys. We got six demerits at our personnel inspection. The whole company, we got six demerits. Everything else was fine, but we got gig six one. The next company that was being inspected, they got seven demerits that morning, and we won the personnel inspection in our battalion with no white hats, no belts, and no T-shirts. Because of the rule, we didn't intentionally do that. It wasn't an individual thing. It was the whole unit that had made the mistake. Well, that's exactly what God is talking about here. If you, as a group of brethren, a nation, a congregation, if you make exactly, all of you make exactly the same mistake and you didn't understand, then God looks upon you as you unintentionally did that. And he accepts his form of apology for it. He doesn't judge you for it. He just says, okay, well, let's correct it. Give me the proper sacrifice so you can say you're sorry. And that's what you'd do. You'd give a sacrifice to say to the Lord, hey, I'm sorry. I, I didn't mean to do that. It wasn't my intention to do that. I was ignorant. I didn't understand. I'll, I'll try to correct that. So that's where you see the idea of unintentional, all right? Now let's go a little bit further. Verse 27. Also, if a person sins unintentionally, and he shall offer a year-old female goat for a sin offering, and the priest shall make atonement before the Lord for the person who goes astray when he sins unintentionally, making atonement for him that he may be forgiven. You shall have one law for him who does anything unintentionally, for him who is native among the sons of Israel, and for the alien who sojourns among you. Remember from last week, I said there's only one law for everybody. And by the way, when it comes to the subject of being unintentional in a mistake, one definition, one law for everybody. Meaning, it doesn't change God's view of an unintentional mistake if you're a native versus you're an alien. He sees everybody the same. You can make the same unintentional mistake. That's very, very important. I don't know about you, but a lot of times, you know, when I do make a mistake with a person, one of the things that generally will come out of my mouth, and I've heard this said to me many times, oh, I, I didn't mean to do that. That wasn't what I meant to do. I said that, yes, I admit it, I said that, but it wasn't my intention with those words to hurt you in this particular way. Even though you felt hurt that way, it wasn't my intention. And that's a very important part of apologizing. In other words, if we realize somebody didn't mean to do that, it's much easier for us to accept their apology. It's the other way around that gets tough. If all of a sudden we see the evidence that he intentionally did that, well, your apology is probably not going to get it with me. I'm going to need something more out of you. Well, that's what God is getting ready to explain here. He's explained unintentional. Now he's going to explain how do we deal with intentional things. This is what the law is going to teach. Verse 30, but the person who does anything defiantly, whether he is native or an alien, 
that one is blaspheming the Lord, and that person shall be cut off from among the people because he has despised the word of the Lord and has broken his commandment. That person shall be completely cut off. His guilt will be upon him. Now, he illustrates an example for us. Verse 32, now while the sons of Israel were in the wilderness, they found a man gathering wood on the Sabbath day. And those who found him gathering the wood brought him to Moses and Aaron and all the congregation. They put him in custody because it had not been declared what should be done to him. Then the Lord said to Moses, the man shall surely be put to death. All the congregation shall stone him with stones outside the camp. What? Did you hear that? The guy knew it was Sabbath. He knew the instruction not to go gather wood on Sabbath, and he did it anyways. And he did it in front of everybody. He's literally standing up and saying, I don't care what God says. I'm going to do what I want to do. You know what the penalty is? Death. Now, think about that for a moment. How many times have you, knowing full well what the Lord has said that you're supposed to do, and you have failed to do it, did you realize you're committing blasphemy? You're worthy of death. Thank goodness we have the Lamb of God's sacrifice that passes us from death to life. Do you see that the law is the one that's building the reason for you to understand and have faith in the Messiah? Because these commandments, he's a just God. He has rendered a good judgment here and has instructed how his law is to work. And if we violate this, we're subject to this law. We're subject to these ordinances. When Yeshua died on the cross, it wasn't the law that was put on the cross. It was our penalties. Our penalties were nailed to the cross. Therefore, God's law has been satisfied, and we've been passed from death to life. I wanted to make sure that we covered that before we go any further into the story of Korah. Korah used to be the grand treasure to Pharaoh in Egypt. Korah was a very prestigious man. You will discover in here he has 250 princes that answer to him. He's a Levite. He's of the same tribe as Moses and Aaron. And he thinks, look, I'm a very prestigious fellow. I understand how things work. And this whole business we got here, the children of Israel, we've got Moses and Aaron running the show here. And to tell you the truth, I'm way more qualified to lead the children of Israel than he is because I know how to manage the money. That's essentially where he's coming from. So with that, let me begin to read to you about what he does. Now, Korah, the son of Izhar, the son of Kohath, the son of Levi, with Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Eliah, and On, the son of Peleth, sons of Reuben, took action. So there's a confederation. I've got Korah, who's a Levite, and he's going to join with two men who are from the tribe of Reuben. Now, what is the complaints and why are they rallying up together? In the case of Korah, he thinks he should be in charge of the priesthood. He should replace Aaron and, and Moses. 
let let me run all that stuff. Besides that, that's that's running the tabernacle, the central thing here. Let me let me see if you're not managing it. If you're not managing the money, you're not managing anything. And then we've got these other guys from Reuben. You remember all that instruction about the firstborn of Israel? You remember back in the early in the book of Numbers, where we have the Levites set aside to pay for the firstborn and all that. Well, Reuben is the firstborn of Jacob. And they thought their tribe should have the benefits of being the firstborn, that they should be getting the blessing for it. And instead, the tribe of Levi is standing in for the firstborn. God has said, I will take the tribe of Levi instead of the firstborn of all of you. But Reuben's going, well, wait a minute, I'm a whole tribe. I should be the firstborn. I should be treated as the firstborn. And so we got these these two complaints, and they decide, okay, we're going to join together as a confederation. We're going to come against Moses and Aaron for the different reasons that we have. By the way, and if you've ever been in a congregation where they had a split, you know, where some brethren rise up and they're objecting to other brethren, objecting to the preacher or whatever the case may be, it is amazing when they decide to be upset and have a split. It's amazing how many different complaints there are. They're not related with one another, but they'll join forces together to take on the leadership of wherever they're at. This guy had a complaint about this. This guy's got another complaint about something else, but they'll join them together. The idea being, see, if we can get multiple complaints going, that's further evidence that what we're saying is right, that you're doing something wrong. And people do this. And Korah and the sons of Reuben, they decide we're going to have a big debate with Moses and Aaron over this whole thing. Verse 3, they assembled together against Moses and Aaron and said to him, you have gone far enough for all the congregation are holy, every one of them, and the Lord is in their midst. So why do you exalt yourselves above the assembly of the Lord? This is Korah complaining to Moses and Aaron. I want you to take note of a specific thing he said here. The whole congregation is holy, every one of them. A little background information. Why is he making that complaint? It has to do with the last commandment that was in the last portion, which is the teaching about tassels. And one of the instructions in that last thing, I didn't cover it last week, but one of the instructions in that last portion is about the making these tassels and about taking this blue cord and wrapping it around. And as a result, this symbol becomes a holy symbol. It's a symbol that you should not follow your eyes, which go whoring after idols, but you shall remember to keep all the commandments of the Lord. So Korah, has said, well, you, Moses, you say you got to have a blue cord on your sitsit or else the congregation is not holy. You said this is all about holiness, and you give them these specific requirements to be holy. The whole book of Leviticus is a whole bunch of that. And he's complaining about it. He's, he basically said, look, look around. We're all holy. Why are you give these extra things? Why are you telling us we have to do such and such and such and such to be holy? We're already holy. That's the complaint that Korah is making against Moses and his teaching. Verse 4, now when Moses heard this, he fell on his face. And he spoke to Korah and all the company, saying, Tomorrow morning the Lord will show you who is his 
and who is holy, and will bring him near to himself. Even the one whom he will choose, he will bring him near to himself. Do the following. Take censers for yourself, Korah and all your company. Put fire in them and lay incense on them in the presence of the Lord tomorrow. And the man whom the Lord chooses shall be the one who is holy. You have gone far enough, you sons of Levi. Now, what is that test? Why did Moses call for that? Well, one of the duties of the priest, and specifically Aaron, he was to take his censer and take fire off the fire altar, and he was to make incense with it, and he was to take it and put it on the golden altar in front of the veil, that he was to burn incense before the Lord. So, you know, that's one of the high duties of the high priest. That was the duty of Aaron. So Moses says, hey, all you guys, bring your censers. Let's see who the Lord is going to choose to bring fire and incense before him. Let's see what the Lord does. All of us come with our censers ready to give incense before the Lord, make a sweet fragrance before the Lord. They should not have taken up this challenge, but they did. They said, okay, all right, we'll let God decide. And for some reason, they thought what God had been doing up to this point, working with Moses and with Aaron, as long as he'd been doing it, following the instructions for the building of the tabernacle that God had worked through Moses. For some reason, Korah said, you know, I think God will choose me over Moses. Where do you get that mindset? I don't know. But anyways, this is what's going to happen. Verse 8, then Moses said to Korah, hear now, you sons of Levi, is it not enough for you that the God of Israel has separated you from the rest of the congregation of Israel to bring you near to himself, to do the service of the tabernacle of the Lord, and to stand before the congregation to minister to them, and that he has brought you near, Korah, and all your brothers, sons of Levi, with you, and are you seeking for the priesthood also? He said, Korah, you're one of the tribe of Levi. We have been given a specific task to take care of the tabernacle. We're the guys that God chose to belong to him. It's not enough for you, and, and, and you want something more? You want Aaron's job? Is, is that what this is all about? He's, he's questioning him. Therefore, you and all your company are gathered together against the Lord. But as for Aaron, who is he that you should grumble against him? Aaron is just one of your brethren in the tribe. It's the Lord who decided this. Why are you grumbling against the decisions God has made? That's the argument being made to court. Verse 12, Then Moses sent a summons to Dathan and Aviram, the sons of Eliab, and they said, We will not come up. Now this is interesting. He wants to confront the sons of Reuben sends a message to them. Now they're just being obstinate. We don't believe that you're in charge and we're not coming up. We're not going to follow your instructions. Hey, I've invited you to come. Let's address. He said, no, we're not coming. Verse 13, is it not enough that you brought us out of the land flowing with milk and honey to have us die in the wilderness, but you would also lord it over us? That's the complaint of the sons of Reuben. You said we were supposed to come in. Now you're lording it over us. You know, they don't like his leadership. They have a claim that they think that God made a mistake. We're the firstborn. We're the tribe of Reuben. 
We're the firstborn of Jacob. Why, why are you doing all this firstborn stuff with everybody else? It's us. We should be in charge, not you. Indeed, you have not brought us into the land flowing with milk and honey, nor have you given us inheritance of fields and vineyards. Would you put out the eyes of these men? We will not come up. And basically saying, you haven't done what you said. We're not in the promised land. We're still out here running around the wilderness. If you remember, back up for a moment. God said, no, you guys are going to die in the wilderness, and we're going to run around for 40 years in this. But Reuben has completely forgotten what they did at Kadesh Barnea when they sent the spies in, and the spies came and said, oh, no, we can't go in that scary. Do you see the disconnect? By the way, when you get people who get upset in a group and they start making accusations to one another, you cannot, well, yes, I think you can. The degree of stupidity that gets involved in these conversations and discussions and arguments reeks all the way to heaven. I mean, it is it moves on the shades of ridiculous. Can I share with you a moment a, a complaint that came against me and everybody was getting upset about? They said my name wasn't Monty Judah. They said I'd made it up. What? What? You, what? Where did you get that? I mean, that's how ridiculous the complaints come against. I've had people accuse me of throwing the whole Bible away. I've had people telling me that I was dismissing the whole New Testament. I was teaching Torah. I wasn't teaching the New Testament. I've had people tell me and complain about me that all I ever talk about is end-time prophecy. I've had people say, oh, all he does is talk about the law, and he never talks about the second coming of Jesus. I've heard it all. I mean, people go bonkers when they decide they want to be in conflict with other brethren. For some reason, facts escape them. You know, investigations, logic, being patient, and know what you're talking about, escapes them. They just want to make whatever statement they can to just cause infuriation and further complaint. Dave and the Naviram are saying, hey, Moses, you haven't taken us to the promised land yet. Yeah, that's right, because God said, you're going to die in the wilderness, and we're going to troop around here for 40 years, and when you're dead, then your children will go in the promised land, not you. Oh, I forgot that part. Okay, maybe that's the reason why Moses hasn't taken us into the promised land yet. But they're not listening to that. They're not paying attention to it. They're just making this complaint and saying, furthermore, we will not come up with you to discuss it. Oh, I love that part. I would say that people who have a problem with me, that I would venture to say that probably 96, no, I, I go higher, 98, almost 99% of them will never come talk to me. They will not come up and sit down and talk to me. They'll just sit back, complain, complain to other people, stir up trouble, and they won't come and talk to me. Here's the case with Moses. I want to talk to you. No, I'm not coming up. I, I don't want to talk to you. Do you see the conflicts? Do you see how it bubbles in all these different directions? God is not going to like this. Then, verse 15, then Moses became very angry, said to the Lord, do not regard their offering. I have not taken a single donkey from them, nor have I done any harm to any of them. 
And Moses said to Korah, You and all your company present before the Lord tomorrow, both you and those along with Aaron. Each one of you shall take his fire pan and put incense on it, and each one of you shall bring a censer before the Lord and 250 fire pans also. You and Aaron shall each bring their fire pan. So they each took their own censer and put fire on it and laid incense on it. And they stood at the doorway of the tent of meeting with Moses and Aaron. Thus Aaron assembled all the congregation against them at the doorway of the tent of meeting. And the glory of the Lord appeared to all of the congregation. Verse 26, then the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron saying, separate yourselves from among this congregation that I may consume them instantly. And they fell on their faces and said, O God, God of the spirits of all flesh, when one man sins, wilt thou be angry with the entire congregation? Understand the logic of what just happened here. Korah has come forward with his princes He's actually rallied up the entire congregation of the sons of Israel to back him. He got everybody to back him. Moses and Aaron standing up there by themselves. God says, Moses, Aaron, step aside. I'm going to wipe the whole lot of them out. Moses is begging God, God, please don't wipe out all of Israel because of the actions of a man. You know, please be merciful uh, to the people. They don't know what they're really doing. So we're looking at some of this unintentional, intentional stuff and how it mixes. Core is being intentional. The rest of the people persuading by him, they're being unintentional. They've just been misled. And being misled means God perceives it as unintentional. All right. So with that said, verse 23, Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the congregation, say, Get back from the dwellings of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. Then Moses arose and went to Dathan and Abiram, with the elders of Israel followed him. Remember, they refused to come up, so he goes with them. He goes to them. And he's going to confront Korah's ten and theirs. And he gets there. Then Moses arose and went to Dathan Abiram, with the elders of Israel followed him. He spoke to the congregation, saying, Depart now from the tents of these wicked men. Touch nothing that belongs to them, lest you be swept away in all their sin. So they got back from around the dwelling of the Korah, Dathan and Abiram. And Dathan and Abiram came out and stood at the doorway of their tent, along with their wives and their sons and their little ones. Moses said, By this you will know that the Lord has sent me to do all these deeds, for this is not my doing. If these men die the death of all men, or if they suffer the fate of all men, then the Lord has not sent me. But if the Lord brings about an entirely new thing, and the ground opens its mouth and swallows them up with all that is theirs, and they descend alive into Sheol, then you will understand that these men have spurned the Lord. So you know what happened? God opened a sinkhole right where Korah was at, right where Dath and Nabiram and their tents and all their stuff. And the sinkhole, and it just, have you ever seen one of these big sinkholes? They just dropped. 
they fall down. They just keep falling and falling and stuff falls in after them. And they, they fell in a sinkhole and they got buried by it. And God wiped them right out, right in front of everybody. You know, when you're standing near an area and you see a sinkhole, what, what do you do? First thing you do is start looking at how to back up. You know, whoa, whoa, that thing, let me see which way I can go here. I'm going to get away from that thing. That was part of the reason why he said, get back from their tents, because a sinkhole is getting ready to swallow them. And essentially, that is what happened. They were swallowed up. Now, I've got to, I've got to share something on a personal basis from this passage. God takes very seriously when he anoints someone, when he appoints someone to go and do a task for him, such as teach or lead within the assembly of the brethren. And anytime you have one of these conflicts, anytime you have one of these splits that we call them, the, the people who are coming against the leader, you are in a very scary position. Very. In days past, you see what happened. You see what God thinks about doing that kind of stuff. He doesn't like this kind of strife in the camp. He doesn't like this kind of conflict in the camp, this kind of envying in the camp. He doesn't want any of it to be in his camp or in his assemblies. But we have it. We have strife. We have envy, anger, arguments. I've always said that the measure of a leader is how you deal with conflicts. If everything is going great and you're the leader of the group and everybody gets along with everybody, well, everybody thinks, oh, you're a great leader. Well, really, we don't know. It's just that you happen to be amongst some brethren that get along and are homogenous and they like each other and so forth. The real measure of whether or not you're a great leader is when conflict begins to rise, how quickly can you go and solve it? If you just let it go and you have this giant conflict and you don't resolve it, you weren't a great leader at all. Matter of fact, you weren't much of a leader at all. Moses is taking action to resolve these matters. He's meeting with, he's going to where they're at. He's following the counsel of God. If you have a leader that's following the counsel of God and he comes to you, you need to be really careful. By the way, right now in these days, and that's been in my lifetime, we understand rebellion. We have the example of Korah and so forth, but we haven't seen any kind of judgment like is described here in the book of Korah in our days. You know, I've, I've gone through a lot of church splits. I've seen Messianic congregations split. My own congregation that I've got here split a couple of times. I call it God's plan of multiplication by division. And I've started several Messianic congregations, but there's a whole bunch of congregations I quote started that split from me. So I'm hoping that God will credit me with me in starting all those congregations. However, that's basically what we see. It's this mumbling, grumbling going on here. I want to give you fair warning, brethren. Let's talk about the future. Let's talk about the greater exodus. Let's talk about when we leave our homes, our houses, and we go out to the camp of the righteous. 
and we're in the days of the Great Tribulation. We know there's going to be some godly leadership out there. We know the 144,000 will be out there. Whatever else God is going to establish will be out there. And I'm going to tell you right now, don't start a dispute with them. If you got one of the 144,000 out there, do not come against them. I don't care what your dumb reason is. This is what God has done in the past, judging the people in a camp. You can expect the same God to probably do the same thing in the future. Besides that, God knows very good and well that if you have rebels inside the camp, those rebels will cause the death of many people. And God wants to preserve his people. He wants to protect his people. And if you're a rebel and you decide you're going to take on the leadership in that future camp, you need to be very aware that the God that will be in that camp coming to the end of the ages is the same God that was here when he brought the children of Israel out of Egypt. Let me go back to the theme again. We are going to be on the greater exodus. The lessons of the earlier Egyptian exodus are lessons for us on when we're going to be in the greater exodus. This one is a huge lesson that deals with the subject of rebellion. Rebellion is not something that we should do. It is what will harm the whole congregation, and God is going to be very, very serious about all of this. All right, so we have this story and what has taken place. Now, let me start with verse 31. Let's continue on. Then it came about as he finished speaking all these words that the ground that was under them split open. And the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up and their households and all the men who belonged to Korah with their possessions. So they and all that belonged to them went down alive to Sheol. And the earth closed over them and they perished from the midst of the assembly. All Israel who was around them fled at their outcry and said, The earth may swallow us up. Fire also came from the Lord and consumed the 250 men who were offering the incense. Remember the 250 princes? Fire came from the Lord. Where exactly did that come from? I guess it came out of heaven. We don't really have it described to us, but apparently those 250 princes that join with the core, core gets buried alive. Guess what happens to them? They're gone. They're barbecued. They're killed by fire. This is earth shaking in the camp. Consider this. These guys were very persuasive. They were very prestigious. They were kind of the upper crust within the camp. And God has just summarily judged them in this manner. Verse 36, Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Say to Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest, that he shall take up these censers out of the midst of the blaze, for they are holy, and you scatter the burning coals abroad. The remains, the cremated remains of all the people and their clothing and everything, it was scattered away from the camp, but their censers, the metal censers, they were all gathered up. So Eliezer the priest took the bronze censers, which the men who were burned had offered, and they hammered them as a plating for the altar. 
they took those 250 sensors and they hammered them down into flat plates and then they attached them as flat plates on the bronze altar. So that when you came in to the tabernacle now and you saw the altar, guess what you saw? All the censers of the men and the families who had rebelled against God. That was a very interesting reminder of that with using those censers in that particular way. So he did that. He took those censers and he that had been burned, hammered them into the plating as a reminder to the sons of Israel that no layman who is not of the descendants of Aaron shall come near to burn incense before the Lord and that he might not become like Korah through Moses. All right, so we got the lesson. Korah is the one who offers incense before the Lord, not somebody else, not even somebody from the tribe of Levi. You must be a priest to do that. God has made that very clear decision. He's the priest, and that's the duty he does, and nobody else. Pretty direct answer. But now you're not going to believe it. Guess what happened the next day? You would have thought at this point this matter would be completely resolved. Verse 41 but on the next day, all of the congregation of the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron, saying, you are the ones who caused the death of the Lord's people. What? Moses and Aaron are the ones that called down fire and burned these guys. Moses and Aaron are the guys that opened the ground up and buried them alive. You think Moses and Aaron did that? Yeah, I think Moses and Aaron had that very interesting machine that it would suck the earth out and that would cause a big fire blaze and so and I I didn't remember that he had that but apparently he must have had that and, and him and Aaron know how to run this machine and, and do all these crazy things that God did see how ridiculous the complaint is it's your fault Moses that this all happened and like God is not part of this that God didn't make a decision they think Moses was just having his way with Korah and Dathan and Laviram and it came about, however, when the congregation had assembled against Moses and Aaron, that they turned toward the tent of meeting, and behold, the cloud covered it, and the glory of the Lord appeared. Then Moses and Aaron came to the front of the tent of meeting, and the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Get away from this congregation, that I may consume them. Instantly, thus they fell on their faces. Let me explain something that God had said about the tent of meeting prior to this. It said that if any man or any person or group of persons approach my tent of meeting, approach my tabernacle, specifically approach my altar, the altars in the tent of meeting. If you approach my altar in a contemptuous manner in the day that you do it, you will die. Here come the children of Israel in an effort to take dispute with Moses and Aaron, but they have decided to go to the tent of meeting to do it. And they're actually approaching God in a very contemptuous and rebellious manner. Now, I thought we got the lesson of rebellion done with Korah. No, no. We've got all of the leftovers that have been infected by the rebellion of Korah. That's what rebellion does. It's not just one guy who rebels. He actually teaches other people how to rebel. 
and maybe they'll rebel for a completely different reason than the first one did. Very serious matter. So they decide they're going to come there, and the Lord has said, take away. Verse 46, and Moses said to Aaron, and this is said very quickly, take your censer, put it, get some fire from the altar, lay incense on it, then bring it quickly to the congregation, make atonement for them, for wrath has gone forth from the Lord. The plague has begun. Then Aaron took it from, as from Moses had spoken, ran into the midst of the assembly, for behold, the plague had begun among the people. So he put on the incense and made atonement for the people, and he took the stand between the dead and the living so that the plague was checked. And those who died by the plague were 14,700 besides those who had died on account of Korah. Then Aaron returned to Moses the door with the tent of the meeting. He said, the plague has been checked. Let me, let me recreate the scene again. Here come all these people to the tent of meeting. They got this complaint. Moses and Aaron, you're the guys that killed Korah. You're the guys that killed Dathan and Aviram. You're the guy that did all these bad things. We don't like you. We're coming against you. Only they came to the tent of meeting. And God said, get out of my way. I'm going to take him out. And immediately Moses knew what was going on. So he told Aaron, Aaron, get your censer, get some incense, get some fire off the fire. Get out into the line of death that's sweeping through the, the whole congregation. From the time he got up, got his censer, got the incense, got the fire off the fire, and started running out into the congregation. And by the way, the Jewish commentary on this says he ran over the top of dead bodies. He was running on dead bodies until he got to the line of death. And the number of people who died before he could get to that line and stop it, they only lost 14,700 sons of Israel on that day. Horrendous. Absolutely horrendous. Now, for fun, turn with me to the book of Revelation in chapter 8. Beginning at verse 1, it says the following words. And when he broke the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for a space of a half an hour. And I saw seven angels stand before God. Seven trumpets were given to him, and another angel came and stood at the altar, holding a golden censer. And much incense was given to him, that he might add to the prayers of all the saints upon the golden altar, which was before the throne. You know, that incense that would go into the temple, it went to the golden altar. That's where they would burn the incense. So he's talking about the same stuff. He says, verse 4, And the smoke of the incense, which with the prayers of the saints, went up before God out of the angel's hand. He took the censer, and he filled it with fire of the altar, and threw it to the earth. And there followed peals of thunder and sounds and flashes of lightning and an earthquake. What in the world is that? Before the seven trumpets come, before the seven trumpets come, God tells this one angel, get that censer, get some incense, get some fire off the fire in heaven, and hurl it to the earth as quickly as you can. You know why? He's trying to protect us from the judgments that are coming. You see, that incense goes out, makes atonement, and God's judgment stops. It doesn't go any further. And he's trying to get 
He's going to lay out all these, these judgments, and he's, he wants to protect his people. So what's he do? He throws a censer with incense down to the midst of us. That's what protects us and keeps us from being hurt by God's judgments that are coming in the great tribulation. You realize that he has to do that or all of us would die in the great trib? He has to do that or all of us would die in the great trib. Now, I want you to take note of something else here that's kind of interesting. Right now, you and I operate in the faith. We walk around, we talk to each other, we read our Bibles, we pray together, we do things together. But we don't have, a, if you will, a lot of interaction with angels. Not a lot, okay? By the way, when we get to the great trib, you're going to start having interactions with angels because this is a huge battle between God and his entire throne against the devil and us, his saints. And by the way, the battle is going to be here on the earth because Satan's been thrown to the earth. So this battle is going to take place, and God's going to have to use some heavenly things out of his temple to protect us from what is coming. There are a lot more resources that God is going to be providing to us than you have realized when we deal with this issue at the end of the ages, and angels will be involved. By the way, just for fun, why don't you pick up the book of Revelation and read how many times there's angels in there? and what they're doing and what they're saying. They are an active part of the end of the age. Angels are going to be an active part of our experience of going through the Great Tribulation. I am fully expecting some very interesting things to happen in those days that'll be quite different from the days we've been living in right now. I think it's going to be utterly terrific, and I'm looking forward to it. And I'm very glad that God has taken his censer and thrown it down to protect us from what is going to be coming in the judgments of the Great Tribulation. That's our teaching for this week, brethren. Shabbat shalom to all of you. I trust you'll have a wonderful Sabbath with the Lord. you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace.